0: Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Lewis Reining. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as part of the Teej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, we'll talk to Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska about Virginia politics, plus a look at a UVA professor's research into student mentors. But right now, we're joined here in the studio by Giles Morris, the executive director at Charlottesville Tomorrow, as well as Elliot Robinson, news editor, and Billy Jean-Louis, education reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. So I know you guys have been following and and tracking for a while now the, the possible renaming of a local Albemarle school. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Of course, so uh, the committee met for the first time uh, Tuesday and it was just an opportunity for them to just like learn more about, you know, uh, the Brown versus um, the Board of Education ruling in 1954. And so the reason why it's so important to learn about, you know, uh, the history uh, behind everything is because, um, you know, Kel who's accused of saying that, Integration was not uh, possible in Albemarle schools. Um, he was superintendent, um, you know, during that time. So it's important to like understand the history and see like how you know everything be, to understand the the bigger picture. So uh, the committee, of course, is made up of parents, um, teachers, and uh, school staff and uh, community members who don't have. Uh, a child attending KEL. So um, in, that was the first meeting, of course. And then their second meeting, uh, which is June 18th, um, you know, which is scheduled at like 6 p.m. Uh, at the county uh, office building, they're going to have a public hearing where they're going to uh, listen to what the community has to say and their third meeting, essentially, they're going to hear from the Kale family. And at their fourth meeting, they're going to make a recommendation to Matt Haas whether they will change or keep the name uh, you know, of, of the elementary school.
0: So the first formal meeting just happened of the commission, but obviously this has been a discussion that's been happening for a little bit now. What are, What is the conversation been, and, and who have you had a chance to, to talk to?
2: Yes, the uh, the conversation began in October. There was a presentation that was on the school level about the integration of school and the first African-American students to integrate the schools, and it was then presented to the school board, and in that presentation, it included an article in a magazine from 1956. It was heavily paraphrased, but it attributed comments to... Superintendent Paul Kale about the incompatibility of integration in Arbor County schools and that led to the school board saying that some action needed to be taken and that in turn when the Kale family heard about it they were completely taken aback because as recently as 2011 they said that they had been invited by the school system to make presentations to come visit the school and also that they felt that that article wasn't representative of their family member. It they said that he was in the school system during integration, and they argued that he helped ease the transition. He was there until 1967, about when the final school was integrated. And we've we've talked to them, the family, extensively, and they have letters from the school system and articles so it's a lot at Paul Kale over the gears and the uh, presentation that they're going to make to the committee is an addition to one of the meetings that this committee is scheduled to have where they're going to describe their side of things and what they know about Paul Kale so it should be very interesting to see from the family's position and the research that the committee is doing and how these things are going to inform the decision of the committee for to recommend something to the school board.
0: So Elliot, if I can follow up with you guys, off of that, one of the things that to me is interesting in discussions is, is we're talking about comments made by an individual who, who's no longer living uh, and those comments were made in the past and the only, the, it seems at this point that the, the main record we have is, is a paraphrase from a magazine. In, in having this conversation in, in determining what to move forward uh, how do you weigh sort of these these this evidence that you you can't talk to that individual directly and you don't have a, a direct record of literally the the quote how are people trying to to weigh the, the the weight of the of the claims and and whether or not the school should be changed
3: I, I think what's interesting about this is how it's become a bigger story and how the district um, is approaching it as Elliot said. It kind of came up from a staff level and a PowerPoint about resistance to integration, um, and um, and but but people in the meeting and in the school administration and in the school communities really didn't know a lot about Paul Kale. It was sort of like, oh wait, Paul Kale. So we went back and asked them, well, what was Cale's legacy? He's your longest-serving superintendent in history. He also, like, integrated the schools over this long period of time. You don't know what his legacy was? You don't know what the community thinks? Was he resistant or was he a facilitator? Do we not have a sort of institutional memory in the district that says that? And the answer is we didn't. There wasn't. You know, some people thought of him as this kind of compromiser who eased the pain at a very difficult time when there was massive resistance going on. Um, other people thought, look, he was a gatekeeper. He was working for a white system to slow down integration and to kind of perpetuate some of the um, segregated school policies. So, so I think the district realized, okay, well, if we're going to deal with equity and our history and our institutional memory and a referendum on whose names go on what, what symbols we lift up and which we get rid of, we need to have a little bit more of a structured framework for dialoguing with the stakeholder community. And that's what you see here. Um, And, and I think, you know, in terms of legislating um, Paul Kale's legacy, um, you know, I don't think anybody needs to come out uh, and, and, and determine whether or not, um, you know, posthumously Paul, Paul Kale senior was, Racist or he wasn't racist. He was. Uh, um, w- the question is whether his name belongs on an elementary school in our county
1: now. Yes. I just wanted to quickly add to what you had to say uh, in regards to whether to keep uh, the name or not. So I had the opportunity to talk to one of the committee members, and what he had to tell me was the fact that, okay, so keeping the name of, uh, you know, keeping the name of the school, is it the best thing for uh, the community? Or like, what's, what is it, you know, moving forward, how is this going to benefit uh, the community? Is it like changing it or keeping it? That's the real uh, question here. Also, the public hearing, you know, he's looking forward to uh, listen to what the community has to say. So I think uh, in listening to what the community wants, that is very important to determine whether, you know, is this going to be a good thing to keep, uh, you know, the name, or is it you're just going to not benefit the community at all?
2: Public input has been a large issue with our Morales schools over the past year. There have been large turnouts to school board meetings because of decisions on what to do with Confederate imagery in the schools and also other white supremacist Symbols the school board seems to be torn on the issue of adjusting the dress code there have been instances where people have been turned out of the School board meeting and there have been arrests made there's uh, passions are running really high in the county And there's a very pivotal moment where the school board has to make very large decisions some some of them that they probably didn't think that it would happen while they were on the board Yeah, and I I actually think
3: what Dr. Haas did around this process was really positive because there was a moment there where it seemed like this stuff was all really reactive. it's like, oh, yeah, let's take the name down. Oh, wait, no, the family says he was good. Let's not take the name down. Oh, these people are calling us racist. You know, it was just like this series of reactions. And it's like, look, this is about... A school district coming to grips with its legacy around integration that still shapes how the district is laid out, who's going to what schools, how communities evolved around the schools. I mean, it's really important stuff. And I think for a long time in American school systems, we just sort of divorced ourselves from these identity issues. It's like the schools are the schools and you educate students. And I think it's all come home to roost here that you have to really be intentional uh, about um, you know who you're representing and how you're representing culturally, I think Kale's a really interesting school for this because it's got his name, but it's not where he where he was and where he worked. It just it a school he helped to sort of facilitate coming into being on his way out, and it happens to be on the south side of town and also have a huge Latino population. So it, it's been one of the kind of port of entry schools for. Uh, uh, ESAU and immigrant students and so what name should be on that school you know something that they should be able to weigh in on
1: and I think you know the public hearing is so important because it's going to determine uh, what the community wants because race is a very important thing you know in America so is keeping the name of the school is going to help the community heal or is changing it going to help the community heal so public hearing to me just like very important and uh, it's going to be june 18th at 6 p.m <laughs> at 6 p.m
0: giles morris is the executive director elliot robinson the news editor and billy jean louis education reporter at charlottesville tomorrow find out more and read the latest at charlottesville you're listening to soundboard here on wtju 91.1 fm and the tige fm network that's t-e-e-j.fm WTJU and TGFM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on this show are, of course, just that opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia.
4: Well, we turn now to state news, and as we do each week, we check in with our Richmond area correspondent, Peter Galaska. Peter, good morning. Good morning. So, I want to start things off today with uh, some research you've been doing on cyber threats, cybersecurity threats, and how municipalities around the country have been having their IT systems hijacked and held hostage for ransom. Uh, What kind of information are you finding?
5: Well actually it just just happened to happen to, just happened to happen to me cuz I was at a college reunion of mine up in the Boston area about 2 weeks ago and they had a, a series of seminars by grads and one of them was very interesting it was Arthur House who had worked for the Director of National Intelligence in Washington under the Obama administration and also now heads the Connecticut State Office for Cybersecurity and I listened to his, um, his talk, and it was very interesting. And then just as I was on my way home, I learned that Baltimore, the city of Baltimore, has been, its IT system has been held hostage. And uh, just putting it all together, it was really interesting. Another, another, other victims of the attacks in our area include the Virginia State Police, UVA, and the Salisbury, Maryland Police Department. And um, this isn't really new at all, but it's just becoming more and more prevalent because a lot of times when people hold hostage, what they do, there's several things that happen, of course, is hacking and et cetera. One is ransomware, where, as in the case of, of, of uh, Baltimore, um, whoever's doing this wants $100,000 in bitcoins, which are hard to trace Internet-wise, uh, to release the system and unlock it. And I was told at my seminar that um, a lot of smaller towns and, and, and services, if they, they get a, a lockdown and a demand for, say, $10,000, uh, they might just go ahead and pay it because it's cheaper than facing lawsuits if people die from not getting 911 service. And there's, there's more, too. I mean, it could get really serious.
4: Sure. And so we've had, you mentioned a couple uh, institutions in Virginia that have had these issues. What, uh, what, what's the state doing? What are, is it just kind of up to each municipality to?
5: Well, some state. I think 28 states have, I think Virginia included, have um, laws in place that call for a certain procedure if this happens. I don't believe that Virginia has created a, a, an own, its own separate state office like Connecticut has. But And, of course, the other thing that Virginia has its it like probably has the second highest number of people trained in cybersecurity after California in the country. And so but, you know, a lot of it's federal and a lot of it's state. We're t- looking here at the state so much. And uh, one of the scary things, for example, I heard in, in, in Massachusetts was that some group um, tied to a Middle Eastern power actually tried to open the floodgates of a dam in upstate New York to cause uh, some flooding. And they actually got into the system. And unfortunately for them, however, it happened that the motor that ran that particular floodgate was down for maintenance, which is just sheer luck. But there have been really clear cases of, of this going on. They've happened in Ukraine. They've happened in Estonia. They've happened in, throughout the Middle East. So it's something to really be concerned about. And it's kind of, it sounds like, you know, an old bugaboo on the back burner, but it really isn't.
4: Yeah, I mean any any sort of threat assessment person would tell you all the all the work is the, the best work in that field is done when it's kind of invisible but it still matters.
5: Oh yeah, and apparently I understand that if you're looking for for work there That is a definite growth area. I think they're going to need hundreds of thousands of new people trained with college degrees and related fields in the coming decades.
4: I'll pass it on to folks I know looking for jobs.
5: Uh,
4: (laughs) I want to move things over to um, talk about the Washington Post. Ran an interesting piece this week about Democrat Abigail Spanberger, a representative from the 7th district here in Virginia, over kind of out your way, uh, the Richmond suburbs, Um, how she has to play it both to the right and to the left to hold on to that district. Uh, Take me through the piece. Yeah, I've
5: been really interested in that because I covered the uh, Dan Ward-Spanberger race for the Democratic primary back in, uh, when it occurred, and um, I was really interested that watching Spanberger, they, they both came on as you know, bright, you know, centrist, maybe a little leftist candidates, but Dan Ward, her opponent, always seemed to come on a little bit harder left. And, and and then, apparently, when, when you know, Spanberger was playing it, because, you know, the 7th district was Dave Brat's district and had historically been a very Republican and very conservative district, and now that Spanberger has won, she's kind of pulling things to the center more. And, for example, her views on, um, she, she's very critical of Obamacare, but once uh, Tim Kaine's uh, Medicare, Medicaid X program, where you could buy into a government program, in uh, other ways too, that she's she's kind of pulling pulling back, and she's she's kind of wearing some of the, the uh, adopting some of the, the symbolism of the more Republican people, like you know going to NASCAR uh, race tracks and things like that, and and softening, toning down uh, gun control stances, which she actually did during the, camp, the primary campaign too, because I mean she's facing a uh, Republican woman. Tina Ramirez, uh, in the up next election. So she does have to walk this line. It's just interesting to see how she's doing it and how the Post has noticed it.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's not, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's district, right? I mean, she Absolutely has to...
5: Absolutely not. I mean, that, that would be suicide for anybody to try in this district, because you, you would go back into the red in a minute. Uh, and, and it's not Wisconsin, and it's not the Bronx. It's, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. But, you know, it's it just that, that Spanberger did ride a wave of, of having been a, a covert CIA agent and officer and also riding a wave of progressivism, and she's reeling that back in a bit.
4: I mean, we've got in the country now uh, folks like Spanberger, who in the past would have probably been the sort of more moderate Republicans, but these days that part of the Republican Party almost doesn't exist, and so they become these kind of -of right-of-center Democrats, in a sense.
5: Well, it's hard to put put a figure on where she actually is, whether she's left-of-center, whether she's center-center, or right-of-center. But I think there's some truth to what you're saying, though. And the whole Trump phenomenon has really, you know, scrambled things now. You know, the whole, you know, traditional way of looking at positions uh, has changed. And, um, but she apparently, obviously, because there's so much of the seventh is rural, mean, she wants in the Richmond suburbs, but she's got to get the rural vote out, too. And they tend to be maybe, maybe some pro-Trumps.
4: Right. Well, uh, speaking of pro-Trumps, I wanted to close with a, a story that ran in the Virginia Mercury this week, sort of an infographic. Um, it's been exactly one year, actually, since Virginia passed Medicaid expansion, and it's been a bit less than that, of course, since it was enacted. In that time, about a quarter of a million Virginians have signed up for health care through Medicaid expansion. Uh, the Virginia Mercury looked at where those new enrollees are. It actually turns out the majority of them live in counties that voted for Trump. So yeah. what's what's the story?
5: Well, that's really – that's another one of these ironies um, that um, – for years the GOP in Virginia did not want to extend Medicaid saying that um, you know, through, through Obamacare, uh, but saying that, you know, who's going to pay the bill? Who's going to pay the bill? It's fiscal conservatism. And, um, and yet uh, people in the poorest parts of the state, namely in the far southwest and to some extent south side, are the very people who voted for Trump, the reddest for Trump in the 2016 election, and now we're the biggest beneficiaries of now that Medicaid has been finally expanded. They're they're the ones who have signed up for it the most because you know this is this is raises the tier uh, of lower income people so you can make a little bit more money but you can now can get Medicaid. So I just find it's an, an irony. I mean, and I don't know what it means as far as Trump.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a net positive that that a quarter million more people have access to health care than did before, right? But it yeah, is no,
5: a- that's a big a big issue, especially when you consider that um, rural areas um, tend to be hit with um, more closures of hospitals and other health care facilities. So people actually, in many ways, because of the, just the economics and the somewhat ruthless business practices of people who run for-profit hospitals, um, you know, are, are shutting down facilities. So people who are sick or need help immediately often have to really go farther distances.
4: And there's an old saw about, about people voting against their own economic interests, but, uh, you know, and the answer to that is, well, they vote for other interests. But in this case, um, will this kind of thing have any impact when... when I
5: have no idea, and that's, that's the real question, because um, somehow Trump's bombast, uh, his approach, his bombastic approach, and his, you know, complete, often dismissing from the truth works, I mean, the, his approach of, of saying whatever comes to his head seems to, no one has been able to hold him accountable for that. And so if somebody says, well, wait a second, you know, we voted for you, and, and yet we did exactly what you wanted us not to do. You wanted to get rid of Obamacare. Now we're benefiting from Obamacare. Uh, can we put two and two together? I, mean, I wish people would, but then again, I don't know. It hasn't happened so far.
4: All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much. All right. Peter Galasco is a journalist based in the Richmond area.
0: You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TEEJ FM network, T-E-E-J dot F-M. WTJU was supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the law, Southern Environmental Law Center. UVA professor Michael Lyons is working on improving student mentorship and spoke with us last year about his work. I'm sitting on today with Michael Lyons, Assistant Professor of Education. Michael, can you talk a little bit about your work and your background?
6: Thanks for having me here today. So my work, uh, I'm trained as a school psychologist, um, and my work in the College of Education is uh, related to clinical and school psychology, so training future uh, psychologists to work with kids in schools um, to promote uh, psychological well-being and promote school outcomes. I also work uh, in youth and social innovation, which is a new undergraduate major at the University of uh, Virginia that's focused on innovation uh, in education broadly defined. So uh, within the school context, within the after school context, uh, how uh, can we promote uh, optimal development in youth?
0: Now, I know that's an incredibly broad, complex, and and uh, topic, can you just to help us wrap our head around it, give us one or two specific examples of um, innovative approaches that that really interest you, you think are really successful, or changes you've been trying to, to, to study or push for within uh, you know, student student and school psychologists, for example.
6: Absolutely. So, I'll give you a, a popular example: mentoring, men- school-based mentoring programs are one of the most popular ways uh, to think about promoting positive youth development. Um, that means uh, how can adults promote uh, life satisfaction within the 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 youth that they serve? How can adults um, help youth? Uh, succeed academically and develop uh, positive relationships with with other uh, people that they come in contact with. Um, one of the ways that that I think about uh, school based mentoring and improving the impacts of school based mentoring is to get mentors to think about um, the youth and sort of what the youth needs within that. Uh, within that relationship, do they need academic study skills, for example, or do they need uh, somebody to just listen to them and hear kind of what's been going on in their life, uh, d- or do they need somebody to help them troubleshoot a challenging situation with a with a peer or adult? That's um, a really challenging uh, skill for for mentors and and adults generally to to do to be able to respond adaptively to uh, the changing needs of of youth. Um, most of my work is in early adolescence, middle school, uh, and as um, y- you may know, middle school is a challenging time for 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 most people, uh, and the need to adaptively respond to changing needs of youth is 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 increased during that period.
0: Now, for people who are in the field, or, or even just maybe uh, lay scientists, people who aren't as familiar with the the scientific method in this context, when you're trying to explore these methods and find best practices, how do you go about testing these things? How do you go about researching um, how to provide these best needs for for students who are so incredibly diverse?
6: Yeah. So as you say, it's it's a challenging... Uh, problem to solve, both um, from a social social perspective, but also from a, a from a research perspective as well. Um, we've taken a, a multi method approach where we uh, use qualitative analyses, conduct focus groups with youth, um, develop uh, curricula collaboratively with uh, various stakeholders, and so not just um, the adults, the teachers, the schools in the room, but also with uh, with the youth. Um, and, uh, and then we've also taken quantitative uh, approaches to understand uh, how uh, our outcomes change from the beginning of the, of the program to the end. And our outcomes uh, can be academic outcomes, can be behavioral outcomes, um, and social-emotional outcomes. So how does the youth feel? Uh, how connected does the youth feel to, to their school? Um, how do they feel about their, the quality of their life kind of overall at the end of the program?
0: So can you talk a little bit more about your own particular focus? Why middle school or middle and high school? Why that particular time in education? Do you feel like it's it's do you find most fascinating or most important for your research?
6: Yeah, it's a it's a, uh, a critical period developmentally where youth are beginning to um, see themselves more independently, that um the social dynamics start to change, that the uh, peers become more important. Other adults that are not family members become more important. Uh, early adolescence is also a period where um, they may be fe- facing new stressors that they hadn't faced before. Challenging social situations, um, to challenging dynamics um, that often um, may be best served by some outside kind of uh, inter- intervention. Um, where uh, parents families play a, a critical role throughout youth development, but during that uh, that period, uh, maybe a, a unique period where we can we can intervene uh, using some other some other
0: outside resources. So I've asked you a lot about your research and about the specifics, and I appreciate appreciate the details. But uh, maybe stepping back for a moment, why is it so interesting to you? Why is this research this work uh, so interesting to you? So important? What about it? Um, If you personally got you first involved, got you first interested?
6: Yeah. So my my background um, is I have a sort of a mixed background. I have a background in economics, a bachelor's degree in economics, and um, I also was always very passionate about working with youth. I worked in uh, youth development programs, I worked in after school programs, summer programs, and I always was interested in trying to find a way to um, blend rigorous scientific research with on the ground applied work that actually had meaning uh, for uh, for youth and for the families and um, people that, that work with them. To me, school psychology did that for me. And uh, it was a way to uh, think rigorously about programming and how uh, systems influence youth development uh, while also having a direct Impact on on children, and I and I carry that kind of philosophy uh, in my current work. Uh, that I'm I'm interested in uh, doing rigorous research, but not just for research sake. Uh, I I want the work that I do to have a, a real applied uh, impact on um, the people that we that we serve.
0: Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Lewis Reining. Our theme song was "Kyoja Beat by Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot Have a great week.
3: from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to put food on our table.
2: Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we
5: can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it
1: at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.